Welcome back to Arab American Psycho. My name is Noor and I have a really special guest this week that I'm very excited about. Uh, he is a Palestinian activist and researcher based in Haifa. Welcome to the show, Adam Hadjahia. Hello, Noor. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you again. It is good to see you again. I was telling Adam that um, I was on the hunt for a Palestinian who lives in Palestine, who is an expert on all things related to queer communities. And I was like, who, where, what? And then I remembered that I met Adam on a panel that I did. And I was like, oh my God, he is, he is who I have been searching for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you found me. I'm, I'm a Palestinian queer activist. <laughs> I think that it's really important that we talk about this, not only because it's Pride Month, but because it's really prevalent to what is happening in Palestine and the oppression of Palestinian people and all of these different matters kind of go hand in hand. But I want to first introduce you and get to know you a little bit better and, and have the audience learn a little bit about you. So were you born in Palestine? Yes, um, I was actually born in Taibe, which is um, a town facing kind of de-development in the central area. Uh, it's quite close to Jaffa. And it's quite next to the border with uh, Tulkarim, uh, basically. Uh, and I've lived in Taibe my entire life. I went to school in Taibe. And after I finished high school, I kind of moved to Jerusalem, Yaffa, and then Haifa, which is where I'm based right now. As far as like your interactions with like the um, illegal Israeli um, occupation, like what is that kind of like, how does that play a role in your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, I mean, Haifa... Haifa is a very interesting place in Palestine, I think, because uh, in one hand, it's under uh, complete Israeli occupation since 1948. Uh, uh, and uh, yet there's a, a very strong Palestinian presence in the city. And mainly the only interesting urban areas and cultural areas are the Palestinian ones. I mean, it's devout of anything interesting that is Israeli not that anything Israeli is interesting but you know it's not even like <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to be to be that really um, and historically like I'm in love with Haifa because it has a very significance a historical significance in terms of the communities that have lived there throughout the years in Palestine um, across centuries uh, it was very much a center uh, where communities from Lebanon and Syria used to meet because of the Hejaz railway uh, it's a working class city. Uh, the very like the major uh, working class movements and workers uh, unions and movements are actually uh, from Haifa, uh, historically speaking. Uh, and nowadays, um, there's like in recent years there has been uh, some sort of a cyclical revival of the Palestinian urbanity in the city, specifically in downtown and in Wadi Nisnas and the, all the remaining remaining um, Palestinian neighborhoods, basically. Uh, there's a very strong uh, queer scene, uh, alternative scene, music scene, uh, and I, I really love the city. It has a lot of different uh, aspects and elements that continuously surprise me as I, I as I stay here for long. So, how long have you been living there specifically? I think this is uh, my fourth year in Haifa. Might be my last as well. Uh, oh no oh no yeah where I, are you going <laughs> i applied to study in uh, the states in new york okay uh I will, I i'll come visit you yeah I'll come you should you. we should meet up yes yeah we should make this happen 
Listen, um, if you if you move to New York, that would be an iconic moment. I can already tell just from your style. I can see him on video. I'm like, you're you're you you're made for New York. Like you you need to go there. You need to show them how to accessorize. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm very because, excited for this, even though I'm kind of scared because, I mean, I have a lot. I've been in, I've been to the states uh, once, even though I stayed there for three months almost uh, six years ago. Uh, and it's funny because everything that I thought about the states came into, you know, materialization when I when I when I entered the states. Uh, all the stereotypes were enhanced. Uh, it's funny, uh, funny enough. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I'm very excited to meet a lot of uh, Palestinian uh, uh, communities in the states uh, and to organize and to mobilize with different communities and to learn. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's going to be a good experience. Definitely. And I think that, you know, for a lot of Palestinians who want to, you know, fight for the freedom and liberation of Palestinian people, one of their only options a lot of times is to move to a different country so that they can, whether it's getting a higher education degree or just in general, being able to have access to certain things, you need to actually leave your home to be able to accomplish that, which is, you know, not the most uncommon thing. But I think the thing that makes it difficult for Palestinians is just in general, Palestinians have a difficulty traveling and and getting visas and moving to different countries, even if it's for a degree. Um, what was that process like for you? I mean, m- m- moving in Palestine is always uh, is always difficult. Uh, and not just physically speaking. I mean, mentally speaking, it feels as if we're always under surveillance. Uh, it feels as if we can't really access each other. It feels as if we are trapped in segregated neighborhoods and streets, and um, and we can't actually explore, you know, our native homeland neutrally. Uh, I mean, colonialism really does affect the way that we view ourselves within the the bigger kind of you know, uh, picture and, and psychologically speaking, I mean, I want to kind of leave Palestine, not because, um, not only because I, I want to mobilize and organize abroad, but also because it takes a lot of emotional and psychological labor to kind of continuously combat this colonial project that seeks to, you know, fragment us, to, to put us down, to oppress us. Uh, and sometimes, we, we really need to kind of take a, a, di- a, a distant kind of, you know, exit for a short while to kind of reflect and recharge because it's so easy to burn out. This, this material reality that we live in Palestine is so strong that it affects every aspect of our life. Um, and I think, I think, I think moving abroad is, is not a, is not even a, a luxury. Or, or a privilege, it's some sort of a survival necessity for many of us. I, I can't even begin to fathom what that experience is like because I don't live on the ground in Palestine. I live in America. I've always lived outside of Palestine. And even for me, someone who does not live on the ground, just the sheer amount of horrific things that are constantly happening to people in Palestine and that feeling of helplessness and that feeling of there is nothing that I can 
actually do in this moment to stop this? And I can try to prevent this from continuing, but in this moment right now, there isn't really much that I can do. And it's, it's very mentally draining and exhausting. And I think additionally, you know, living in Palestine, this is something that everyone around you is feeling. This isn't just a you thing. So it's an even different kind of experience because you know, for me, I'm like, oh, I wish there were more people around me who could relate to what I'm feeling. But I think there's pros and cons to everything as, you know, and, and I think that it being in Palestine and being so engulfed in it and everyone's life being affected by it, the way it plays a role is much more emotionally taxing and just, I mean, and, and that's what Israel's entire mission is, is to is to exhaust us mentally, is to whether they're killing us quickly or slowly. That's that's ultimately their goal. They want to make Palestinians' lives miserable and they want to make the conditions um, unlivable. Like that is their ultimate goal. Yeah, I could not really say this better. I mean, the thing is about Palestine is, you know, a lot of people read theory about uh, intersectionality and about... Um, you know how different problems and uh, and issues and, and, and uh, you know general general struggles are uh, connected and how they intersect. And in Palestine, we don't really have to you know kind of theorize and articulate you know our our reality in that kind of you know theoretical lens because we're really living it. Like we're really living this reality where we see how. Colonialism, Israeli occupation, military Israeli occupation that is funded by the U.S., that is based on, you know, the legacy of European colonialism in the region is affecting us and is affecting every aspect of Palestinian life. Uh, the, the gender relations, the sexual relations, our psychology, our uh, connection to our indigenous, you know, practices and culture, our traditions. It's really so interlinked in a way that we cannot really, you know, it, it, we don't really need to theorize anything. It's just, it's practiced, it, it's visible, it's very blatant. Uh, and I think, I mean, growing up in Palestine and, and having the, um, the ability to kind of uh, live and, and base myself and work with different communities across different regions has really taught me so much and affected me in, in such uh, different ways. That I feel like I'm, I'm really understanding reality and solidarity and mobilizing and organizing in such a practical way that I, I don't think that anything can replace that. I mean, if it's as it's as if we are born into a reality where our const, like we're constantly facing, you know, a, a reality that teaches us lessons time after time that makes us um, understand uh, complex and um, very, uh, very interlinked uh, systems of discrimination, so so simply and so naturally. Um, yeah, it's it's unfortunately the norm in in Palestinian society. Yeah. I mean, nothing is a for me. I I the reason I feel like I was able to grasp that and and really understand it is because my parents never sat me down and said, "Let me explain to you the Israeli occupation." They would just share small pieces of information throughout my life. And through just hearing their personal experiences, I was able to make that connection that this is their constant reality. There is no break. There is no, there is always some form of attack on the Palestinian people. And, you know, 
like I said earlier, I mean, that's Israel's ultimate goal is to make Palestinians disappear, whether it be through killing them or just making the circumstances so absolutely unbearable. Um, and, you know, I will say I do, I'm actually very impressed and proud of you that you recognize within yourself that you need to remove yourself for even a period of time to maintain your own, I guess, like sense of self. Like, I can't even imagine how draining that is. And absolutely you need a break. I mean, I live in Florida and I feel like I need a break sometimes just with everything that's happening. So I think that that's honestly really impressive that you were able to realize that this is something that you need to do for yourself and that it's, you know, it's essential for you to take care of your mental health. Like, I mean, ultimately that's, that's the most important part of anyone's life. And, and, you can't, you know, continue to fight this fight if you are completely drained and exhausted. Yeah. I mean, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, um, also like European discourses and, you know, international American kind of news outlets continuously discuss the, the material ramification of occupation, uh, on Palestinians. Like they discuss the fact that a lot of people are dying. A lot of people are getting their houses demolished. And, you know, this is, this is real, this is happening, this is important. But I think they really neglect uh, and they fail to mention how difficult it is uh, on every aspect to live under Israeli occupation on a familial uh, level, on a psychological level, on a social level, on a creative level, on a cultural level. Like, it's like as if we're, we're constantly fighting for our existence uh, and when I talk about existence, it's like our existence in any possible medium and every possible way. Um, and I think that we can, we, we constantly also feel this kind of um, responsibility towards Palestine because, you know, it's, it's who we are. It's in our blood. It's, it's our homeland. It's the thing that we link for even when we are in Palestine. Like we're constantly thinking about Palestine while we are in Palestine. We're so, we we are we have been fighting for this for over 73 years i mean we're determined we're stubborn <laughs> we, we're not giving up <laughs> these are all facts these are i mean i've never met a palestinian who was not just determined i mean the anyone who's listens to my podcast knows this about me and if you're ever wondering how does nor have this unlimited amount of fight within her and resilience that is called generational trauma. Yeah. That is called <laughs> exactly. um, having two parents who were born and raised in Palestine who lived through this. My mom's birthday is the Nekba. Like it's just, yeah. it's it's so a part of our lives and they're, and it does bring me joy though because that is, I think, Israel's fear is that yeah. they they this is what they were worried about happening and they were hoping wouldn't happen and they were hoping that over time palestinians would get tired or you know their kids would choose to not care and just you know live in a different country and just carry on with their lives and just forget about palestine but it's like no no that's yeah. that's that's not that won't be happening yeah. sorry to to break it to you um the stubbornness is occasionally directed at very silly things, but for the most part, it's it's just directed at uh, Palestinian liber liberation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like calling us stubborn. Really, I mean, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, watch all the videos um, of you know, like the the youth in Jerusalem 
how how they know that they have nothing to lose in the sense of you know they they, they don't they're not scared of soldiers i mean they have, they they are growing up with with guns being pointed at them uh, going to the grocery store or for or going back from school um, and i'm not romanticizing this reality not even in the slightest i think it's violent and this is why we're fighting for liberation uh, but but the fact that we are raised in such a violent reality it kind of makes us have um, a thicker skin uh, and and seeing how many palestinians across palestine despite the colonial fragmentation despite living under different colonial realities despite israel's attempts to kind of you know illustrate different images of different palestinians to kind of you know show us how how we're not united how we're not the same that people how this palestinian is living under gaza how this palestinian living in palestine 48 and the other one is in the diaspora uh, and you know the diaspora is it's it's many places different cultures different areas different realities and then there's the west bank and the west bank there's and, and in each and every city in town there's like microcosmoses that that differ but still we are managing to stay united we are managing to continue and carry what our ancestors and, and grandparents have, have carried for years and we are not giving it up and I think that's really empowering in that kind of sense it I mean it definitely is empowering and in in the moments that you do or when I feel that mental exhaustion that feeling of what can I do it's the reminder of that that really helps me feel like I am a part of a community. I, I am a part of a people who is all fighting for the same thing. And we are all unified in that way, regardless of where we're located. It is a bond that is instantaneous. And I promise you, I've met a lot of unpleasant people in my life. Some of them happen to be Palestinian. Yeah. And I promise you, even in those in unpleasant interactions, there is still this weird mutual respect for one another where it's like, fuck you, but also you're Palestinian, so maybe not fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, it's this, it's just like, we're ultimately fighting one bigger picture. So we're a little annoying right now, but we have the same goal. So it's, it's fine. And it's, it is really nice. And it's, it's one of the small comforts, I think that Palestinians do have, um, which are very few and far between. But when, you know, like you said, we're stubborn. So we find something, we hold on to it. And we're like, you can't, you're not going to change my mind on this. Like yeah. I am holding on to this. This is what I have. And fuck you. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask, when did your, I mean, I think that, okay, let me rephrase this question. I think that living in Palestine, as you mentioned, activism is just kind of very much so ingrained in the fabric of society. Like being yeah. an activist is just existing. But when did you feel like you, your activism really began and, 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 and what, what kind of actions were, did you feel like these are things that we can do to make a difference? And, and what was that kind of like? Yeah, well, basically, I come from um, a working class family in Taibu. Uh, my mother is a teacher. And she's an Arabic teacher. And my father is an electrician. Um, my uncles and aunts are all, you know, also working class individuals. They were all very much uh, opinionated and politicized, different. Uh, each and every one of them ca- like kind of led a different kind of political path for themselves. Uh, and I would, I, and I'm the first grandchild, 
uh, in the two families. So I, I used to always sit with my, my uncles and aunts and, and listen to their political discussions. Uh, and then I would watch them uh, dance, uh, wearing funny clothing. And then I would watch them argue about different, uh, you know, musical pieces and uh, theatrical plays. And it was very much, um, you know, a, a very rich and beautiful kind of childhood in that kind of sense. That has also um, later on shaped my my perception and understanding of, of my reality as a Palestinian, uh, and in every lens of in every aspect of being a Palestinian. Um, like my, my mother um, was always um, someone who is critical uh, of uh, of oppression uh, towards um, you know discrimination against women against. Uh, uh, based on um, religion, everything. Like she, she would not tolerate any kind of discrimination. And my father was had a more philosophical kind of spiritual approach to things. Uh, he would always talk about different religions. He would talk about God uh, uh, and the devil uh, in the philosophical sense. Uh, and he would uh, introduce me to different, um, you know, systems of uh, beliefs and and so on. Uh, and it really affected me. Uh, and later on in my teenage years, I started to kind of work with local um, youth movements in, uh, in my hometown, uh, organizing to protest against, uh, for example, on land day, uh, organize protests in our schools, talk about Nakba, because for Palestinians living in uh, 48, uh, we can't legally talk about the Nakba in any educational framework. We can't talk about Palestinian history. It's completely, uh, you know, buried and we can't discuss it teachers if they speak about the nakba they can get their licenses you know provoked uh, it's very it's very violent uh, like our narratives our history is silenced uh, and quite violently so uh, so we would organize these um, you know talks these initiatives to kind of empower and uplift palestinian voices and palestinian narratives uh, within uh, youth circles uh, and educational circles that are not connected to any institution uh, independently. And later on, I began to kind of build my own, you know, approach and understanding of what activism meant, uh, especially uh, during high school. Uh, myself and my friends and, and my, uh, uh, my classmates, like a group of people uh, at the time, we were very outspoken about uh, anti-colonial values, feminist values, queer values, like they would always talk about different controversial topics in school because we knew that we, we couldn't legally talk about these things and we didn't really care. We gave we didn't give a fuck about what the teachers said, even though the teachers were terrified. Like they would agree with us some of the time, but they would be terrified because it could cause the school some trouble. Uh, but we didn't really care. Like, we would go and spray graffiti. We would uh, print out flyers and, and distribute them to students uh, and just do whatever we felt is right to do. And later on, when I left my hometown to kind of pursue a more independent, like, path for myself, I became involved with a lot of uh, feminist, queer, anti-colonial, and youth movements across Palestine and Jerusalem, in Ramallah, uh, in Bethlehem, in Haifa, Yaffa. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I've, this is what I've been doing. Yeah, up until now. I mean, and and like I was saying before we started recording, you truly are like a wealth of knowledge on these these different 
these different, you know, aspects of uh, people or aspects of these queer communities and feminist communities and just in general, these, I guess, more controversial topics that do exist in Palestine. And, and, and that's kind of a segue into what I really genuinely want to hear your thoughts on, which is pinkwashing, yeah. because I'm always on TikTok. I fucking TikTok has consumed my life. I really genuinely need to probably delete the app. Um, But (laughs) the amount, the sheer amount of TikToks that I see on my For You page, and and we all know how algorithms work. My algorithm knows I'm Palestinian. Like there's no fucking way my my algorithm doesn't know. My algorithm knows. And yet they will continuously push this pinkwashing narrative from people who live in Israel being like, you know, um, if you were queer in Palestine, like you Palestinians would kill you. And just all of this complete, I mean, it's propaganda and it's factually incorrect. And they're missing lots of important, uh, you know, facts that really alter the narrative that they're pushing for. And um, it's just, it's such a, it's become such a, I think, topic of discussion recently. And so that's why I was like, I, I want someone who's an expert on this to, to shed some light on what exactly pinkwashing is. And, and um, we can, we can go from there. I'm one question at a time. I'm like, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> we'll start from there. What is pinkwashing? Uh, I mean, p- pinkwashing is gaining a lot of uh, attention uh, right now uh, with everything that is, has been happening in Palestine and social media as um as uh, a colonial policy that is being, you know, discussed and debunked and uh, and tackled, but uh, queer Palestinian activists have been uh, talking about pinkwashing and uh, analyzing pinkwashing for over uh, twenty years now, like since the uh, Second Intifada, uh, frankly, uh, movements such as Al Qaus, for example, which is a Palestinian grassroots organization, have been continuously uh, analyzing uh, pinkwashing policies, accumulating knowledge framing it in different ways and, um, you know, uh, leading the discourse about about these policies. Uh, but pinkwashing basically is a, a colonial policy that seeks to um, divert the attention from Israeli colonialism, military occupation of, uh, of Palestine, uh, the besiegement of Gaza, the occupation of 48 lands, uh, the, the occupation of uh, the West Bank, settlements building, uh, killings, bombings, everything that Israel does to us Palestinians, that is very much far away from being, you know, a liberal value or something that fits into the European Western uh, liberal discourse. Uh, and it does so by painting itself as a gay haven for uh, queer LGBT and queer uh, people. Uh, and specifically talking about Tel Aviv as the center for uh, these hubs. Uh, in the so-called, you know, Middle East, uh, which is also has been painted uh, tremendously uh, in Western media, specifically after 9-11 as a region that is, you know, violent, a region that is regressive, a region that is intolerant of uh, various freedoms of women, queer people, or, or, or any, any person for that matter. And the rise of Islamophobia, of course, um, that, that seeks to kind of, you know, 
flatten Muslim communities uh, worldwide uh, and paint them through a monolithic lens that all Muslims are backwards. All Muslims are, de- you know, devoid of any sexual attraction, devoid of any beliefs of freedom and for- of liberation. Um, Muslims are violent, etc., etc., etc. So this is what Pink Washington tries to do in the propaganda kind of sense, but it has a lot of other psychological ramifications on Palestinians uh, and specifically queer Palestinians. What pinkwashing does is that it, it kind of forces the idea and the notion upon Palestinians and upon, upon Western communities that Palestinians can never actually accept uh, LGBT and queer people. Uh, that Palestinians are inherently regressive and savage in their nature and violent. And therefore, Palestinians cannot uh, be, uh, you know, tolerant of uh, diverse uh, gender and sexual attitudes. Um, and it kind of erases the Palestinian queer movement because it, it doesn't even begin to to admit that this movement has been existing for over a decade uh, now, uh, and that it is a movement that is actually an anti-colonial movement uh, at large. Like the Palestinian liberation, uh, queer liberation movement is a liberation movement that seeks to liberate every Palestinian and to achieve radical liberation for every Palestinian, regardless of sexuality, gender identity, um, political, uh, you know, inclinations, uh, ability for that matter, uh, class. Uh, it's it's a very it's a very intersectional movement that seeks to really elevate the discourse about the liberation of Palestine. Time. And what Pink Washington does is to erase this movement, to erase the existence of queer Palestinians who have power and agency, uh, to erase uh, queer communities who are actually, you know, sustaining themselves and battling uh, patriarchal violence in their own communities and achieving success in, in, in progressing uh, the discourse about these issues uh, in order to fit into the Western liberal narratives of, of, of gay rights. And I think even just as you're explaining it to me, like the ability I have to debunk it is not a special ability that is unique to me. I think anyone who hears this should be able to see all of the holes in it. And it's shocking to me that it's not as apparent to everyone. But the first thing that comes to mind is, as you said, I mean, Palestinian people are not all one, you know, individual person. They're not all Muslim. They don't all have the exact same beliefs, but more so I think it's absolutely ridiculous that people are failing to recognize the fact that globally, and this means America, everywhere in the world, no matter how progressive a society claims to be, there will always be people who are homophobic, who are not supportive of these communities, families who disown their children. I mean, it's it's Pride Month now, and I'm driving by people who are waving flags and hanging out banners, and I can see white people who are protesting against them speaking out and exercising their freedom of speech and their rights. And And it's just so ridiculous to me that people, number one, aren't considering that entire factor, which is that why are we acting like the whole rest of the world just like loves gay exactly. people? And it's, it's, it's just Palestine. Palestinians are the only people. And, and I also think that what you said is, is so um, important because also the colonial framework that exists also uh, negatively affects queer Palestinians. Like it's not just for cis Palestinians. It's for every Palestinian. And, and, and they're not, you know, uh, putting a gun to someone's head and being like, wait, are you gay? Like, 
Yeah. You know what I mean? That, that's that's not what's happening. It's yeah. to them, all Palestinians are one Arab, um, or Arabs in general are all just Arabs to them. And they definitely are not, you know, taking into consideration that there are queer communities and they are actively trying to erase that and they are actively trying to control the narrative that all Palestinians hate queer people. They're homophobic. And that's just not true. I mean, yep. I am not, I don't, I'm not queer, but I am an ally and I will always be an ally and I will always be outspoken about it. And I am Palestinian and I exist. So, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, you've touched upon so many important and significant points here. Um, first of all, the fact that um, if we want to talk about religion in general and different interp interpretations of religion, every religion uh, has uh, homophobic tendencies uh, in, in particular inter in interventions. And every religion can be in interpreted differently also to be accepting of these things. Uh, and so is Islam for that matter. Uh, and if we if, if we want to talk about like um, like the Quran, for example, it, it doesn't mention any kind of you know homophobic <laughs> uh, uh, statements about queer people. Like the, the scripture does not mention anything about gay people, for that matter. And there are a lot of interp different interpretations of religion, such as you know, such as any other literature. Like people interpret literature in different ways, uh, and so is faith. I mean, not all Christians are the same. Not all uh, Jewish people are the same, and not all Muslims are the same. Like big shock. Uh, yeah, I know. So so shocking and surprising. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, hello. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's the thing. It's and and but people really don't think that specifically about Muslims, and I think it's because Islamophobia is so widely acceptable at yeah. this point, and just kind of very much so a part of every society. But like when people meet me, the first thing they say is, or one of the first things they'll always say is. I didn't expect you to be this way. And I'm just like, what the fuck did you expect yeah. me to be like? <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. I don't fit into the little box that you've placed every Muslim into, but there are a lot of us and we're not all the same. And like you're saying, the interpretation of any text is always going to vary. Always. We, you could put a room uh, full of 50 people, all different people, and have them read the same three lines, and everyone is going to have a different interpretation of it. These are just factual things. These aren't just like, you know, uh, my opinion to fit the, the argument. It's like factually true. Not everyone has the same brain. So... Yeah, I mean, I mean, Israel and Western, um, you know, governments are very much into gaslighting, really. I mean, it's like a, a specialty. Uh, I mean, I mean, they, they tend to forget. I mean, there's, there's also this fact that, for example, when we talk about uh, European colonialism uh, and uh, the beginning of European colonialism, uh, when European colonialists in France and, uh, you know, England uh, began to plan uh, their colonial missions, they they had this um, you know template uh, of how they would rank different civilizations that they encounter uh, based on criteria that they have decided, uh, and these criteria will determine whether these civilizations are uh, you know progressive, less progressive, more advanced, less advanced. Uh, and one of the the standards that they have set is that a, a more civilized society is a society that uh, has a very clear distinction between uh, men and women. Like, th they would be binary societies. 
And, you know, now the queer liberation movement internationally is seeking to dismantle, you know, these divisions and to have a more, you know, um, fluid approach to gender and sexuality, to not limit uh, gender and sexuality to two binaries, uh, and to kind of dismantle this entire system uh, of binarism. Um, and it's funny because the societies and the communities that have been having a queer approach in, the, in, in today's terminology towards sexual and, and uh, sexuality and gender were Eastern and Black communities uh, that were colonized later and affected by these European values of having a strict, strict definitions of what is a man and what is a woman and how should each and every person behave. Uh, and they would forget that, for example, the, the, the law in the West Bank that uh, deems homosexuality illegal is actually a British law. It's from the mandate area. It never existed. Uh, and there's enough uh, research done about the region in the Levant, in uh, Turkey, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Egypt, about how uh, different sexual and gender attitudes were actually normalized in societies and not actually, you know, demonized or discriminated against. So this entire notion of, of painting the East, the Orient, as somewhere that is regressive, that is unaccepting of freedoms, is ridiculous because they used to actually say how much we are, we are savage because we had sexual freedom more than Western civilization to begin with. Uh, and it's it's funny because colonialists have this goldfish memory where they forget what they did, they forget their history, they forget their colonial legacies, and just jump uh, on Muslims nowadays to just you know demonize and and dismiss and erase uh, what we have been doing and what we have been living. And it's 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 so convenient, and it's it's just I mean the gaslighting is uh, never ending, truly, and and it's. It's in every aspect of, you know, everything that they believe in, they really just continue to ignore these facts that they are the impetus for many of these issues that we're now experiencing. And I often think about, I mean, my dad is a 73-year-old Palestinian man who lived in Gaza for most of his life. So if that gives you like a general vibe to what his vibe is. He told me a story when he was about, uh, about when I was about maybe 17, about him befriending a guy in his high school. And at first, I didn't immediately make the connection that he was saying this was a queer classmate of mine. He said that he was a boy who was picked on and bullied by some of the other kids in the class. And so he befriended him to yeah. kind of protect him in a way. And I later found out that that boy who he befriended in his high school class was queer. And my dad is very religious. He is not secretive about it. He is the most religious Muslim that I know personally. And yeah. although I don't think that he's like, you know what, I want everyone to be gay. I don't think he feels that way and nor will I pretend that he does. But he does believe that all human beings deserve to be treated with respect and dignity and should not be ostracized or, uh, you know, treated in any way because of their sexual identity or anything about their identity should not be an excuse for the mistreatment of human beings. And that to me is how I view Islam. And that to me is how I view the treatment of others, regardless of how they identified or their sexuality or whatever it may be. And this happened in the 1950s in Palestine. Yeah. So for people to, to make this argument that all Palestinians, I'm like, 
there, I've never met anyone more religious than my dad. Truly. I a hundred percent have not. And, and even he was not out here like fuck gay people. Like that was not at all what (laughs) the reality is. I mean, Palestinian people are definitely, they, they're, they're not a monolith. There are different types and some of them are more tolerant than others as are all societies. But I think that for the most part, there is a lot of tolerance within Palestinian people in general. And I think that ties into kind of the beginning of our conversation where we talked about this, this unity that Palestinians do have. And, and I think that not everyone has the luxury of being, uh, you know, outwardly queer, but that is not unique to Palestine. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I mean, I, I, w- I want to share like an experience of mine uh, regarding this, this subject. And I know that this experience is not, you know, the general experience of, you know, Palestinian queer people, but it's, but it's a Palestinian queer experience happening in Palestine. And it's when, it's how I came to terms with the fact or realized the fact that I'm a bisexual person. And it was through my parents. I mean, we were listening to music uh, on MTV and VH1 uh, when I was about 13 or 12 at the time. Uh, and they were uh, listening, uh, and Rotana Musica, and they were, you know, just changing uh, uh, music uh, from channel to channel according to what, you know, what, what came up and what they liked. Uh, and the song of George Michael came up and they started talking about George Michael and about uh, his uh, uh, new partner at the time that was named Ahmad, if I'm not mistaken. And they started to talk about the fact that he is an Arab person and the fact that George Michael was dating an Arab person. Uh, and then my father proceeded to talk about uh, George Michael's bisexuality uh, and the fact that George Michael came out as bisexual, but then he said that he's gay and, and everything about that. And I was just listening um not really understanding the conversation, uh, which is why I asked my father what, what bisexual meant. Anyway, just like, you know, he brushed it off and said, it's just, you know, it's just someone like you. And I didn't really understand what he meant because I wasn't really aware of, you know, these terminologies about sexuality and identity. Uh, I didn't really, re- you know, have an idea of who I was at the time. But later on, I mean, I, I realized that my father already knew and I never really had to come also, you know, you know, to give into this also, you know, coming out concept of I have to come and confess something to my family. Because in, in a sense, Palestinian society, like many other Eastern and, and, and globally Southern societies, is a collective society. And it's a society that it, it can be very toxic, but it can be very helpful at, uh, at times, uh, where everyone is really involved in each other's lives. I mean, we really care about each other. We, it's, if, I, if I'm facing a problem and my mom knows about it, she, she really you know, rises for the occasion and tries to help as much as she can. And so is my aunt and so is my grandma. And it's, it's, everything is a, is a matter of you know, a, a public concern on you know, an extended family level. Uh, and so is uh, gender sexuality. I mean, people don't, in general, in, in, in anywhere in the world, people just don't just go to their parents and tell them, listen, I'm, I'm this and that. And then there's you know, this, this decision that needs to be made where the parents accept the child or dismiss them and disown them. It's a process. People have conversations. Things just don't just happen overnight. And the fact that Palestinian society is constantly painted as the society that, you know, kills uh, LGBT and queer people, a society that uh, doesn't accept or tolerate uh, gender and sexual diversity is just ridiculous to me. It, it doesn't make sense. Uh, it, it, it doesn't. It, 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 there is no, you know, foundational, logical thought or thinking behind behind this 
this kind of notion. It doesn't make any sense to me. And the fact that people still buy into this, the fact that people still legitimize Israeli colonization and military occupation and the bombardment of Gaza because the so-called violence against LGBT and queer Palestinians, I mean, I mean, do, does... Do people really want their values regarding who deserves to live and who deserves to die be based upon the fact if a society is more progressive in terms of accepting gender and sexuality? I mean, I mean, was it okay? is it still okay to bombard the U.S. nowadays because trans women are being killed, for example? Is it okay to attack different countries and to colonize them and to demolish their houses and to throw them out to the streets and to ethnically cleanse entire societies because they are intolerant of gender and sexuality? I mean, does, is, is this really the rhetoric that we have to deal with in order to humanize and legitimize our struggle? It doesn't and, make and sense. Even just basic, basic logic and reasoning. How is that a solution? All you are doing is creating more obstacles and more hindrance on these queer communities because now not only are they potentially being mistreated for their sexual identity, but now they also are homeless. Now they also are in fear for their lives. Now it's just like, how is that a solution in any way, shape or form? It's not like Israel is like running around in Palestine and like doing like a survey and being like, are you queer? Come with me. Let, let, let me, let me help you. That's not happening. And, and it definitely is also something that is weaponized in a way that I think most human beings around the world who are allies or should be incredibly offended by it's a it's absolutely offensive to me that israel you know portrays themselves as this safe haven for gay people when in reality they are making the lives of so many lgbtq palestinian communities unbearable unlivable and 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 like you said i mean i I think that coming out is is definitely more of a, I don't want to even use the word dated, but it's just there's something about it that feels like unnecessary. Like I don't announce uh, to people most things that I feel in life just for no, like, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't need to be a thing. Like you can just exist and if it empowers you to come out, then by all means, but like if you're out and you're just existing and people, it's, it just seems like an unnecessary step. But I think that Israel really highlights all of these very small, insignificant aspects of queer Palestinians to just further their agenda and it's so transparent to me. It's so clearly very transparent to you. And that's yeah. why I have such a hard time wrapping my mind around how people are not seeing this clearly and why, you know, queer communities around the world aren't more offended by this or, or their allies. I mean, it's, that's what it, it's, it's incredibly offensive. I mean, yeah, the thing is, is also like, I don't even want to go into the fact how there's violence towards LGBT and queer Israelis, because that's not the, the subject. But the fact that people who claim to be allies of, you know, this international LGBT and queer movement, and like the, the same people are the ones who are demonizing, you know, Palestinians and not giving a fuck about LGBT and queer Palestinians. I mean, it, it, it's funny that these people actually have the audacity uh, to come and state that they are, you know, pro 
LGBT and queer rights. It's funny that a person would value the lives of a particular community and then deny the humanity of another. Um, and I don't, I don't really tolerate these kind of discourses anymore. Like there was a time where I think um, a lot of us Palestinians in general, just in regards to the queer community, where we would get into discussions where we would have to actually fight to just demonstrate how bombing us is wrong, where we'd have to get into a fight where we would have to demonstrate why, you know, occupying uh, our land, uh, building more settlements, uh, demolishing uh, houses, uh, limiting our movement, uh, limiting our access to any resource for that matter is wrong. And I, I feel like we shouldn't engage in these discussions anymore. I mean, the standard, the international standard for Palestinian life and dignity and humanity is so low. And sometimes we get into these discussions and we kind of enable this kind of rhetoric from, from manifesting. And I think what is happening right now on a global scale in terms of how us Palestinians are actually taking the lead in articulating our reality, in mobilizing and in, in combating these, these things is that we don't really give a fuck about what the West and what Israel thinks about us we don't really want to kind of waste our time uh, legitimizing why protesting peacefully in the streets is wrong we don't want to get into get dragged into these um, stupid discussions where we have to you know kind of talk about the fact why why fighting for our liberation is not anti-semitic i mean these things are are constantly being you mean we're constantly being dragged into discussions that are not what we need to be focusing on and we're realizing that realizing that this is not what we should be talking about we should be talking about our own liberation we should talking about how we are going to be united we should talk about how we imagine a liberated Palestine. We should talk about community connections and um, solidarity and rebuilding and healing and um, our own mental health and our collective, uh, you know, trauma. Instead of getting into these unnecessary discussions where, you know, bigots and people who just kind of enforce their colonialist views on us kind of, you know, blabber. I mean, I don't need to prove anything to you. I'm going to say what I have to say. You either accept it or get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> I mean, period. Honestly, and, and that's such, I think, an important thing for you to say. So for the Palestinian people who are listening, we don't need to engage in these conversations. Yeah. It is simply a waste of our energy and time. And my my perspective on talking about Palestine in general is if people are unwilling to recognize the existence of Palestinian people and that we we are there, we have been there, and we are continuing to be living on our land, I will not engage in any dialogue with you, period, at all. We're, we're, there's not going to be a conversation between us. Go with God. See you later. Like, it's just, it's not going to fucking happen because... There, it is pointless. It is it is a waste of energy. And like you said, I think it's much more important to amplify Palestinian voices and continue working towards our mutual goal and healing and taking care of our minds and bodies and taking care of one another and supporting one another. That That is the strongest tool we have. And not only that, that is something that will bring us peace, whether it be a reality of peace or simply inner peace. But those those are the actions that we can take that make a positive change. And I think we will see short-term and long-term effects of these positive 
changes that we are making within our communities and within the communities of our allies. And I think that, you know, with it being Pride Month, I, you know, have taken it upon myself to look into what are what are queer Palestinians doing? And there's I mean, just Google it. There, There is so much that they are involved in, especially in the creative field. They're doing incredible things. And I think more than anything, that is what I want to see being spread around because it is so special and it's so beautiful. And it's just further proving the resilience of a Palestinian people, regardless of their sexual identity. We are all fighting for liberation. It's not just that we're fighting for the liberation of uh, queer people. We're fighting for Palestinian liberation. And that encompasses queer Palestinians exactly. because we are not create in my mind. I don't like identify, okay, there's Palestinians and then there's the queer community. Like we're all Palestinians together. You don't exactly. have to pick one. I, I completely reject that. And I think most people who, you know, believe in logic and reasoning would also reject that because it doesn't make any sense. We don't, we don't have to pick one label and, and nothing else can fit into that. I mean, b- before I go into this, I, I just want to give, um, you know, today to kind of highlight the fact that a lot of, like th- that the fact that the Palestinian queer community is so present in the streets, uh, in the protests that everyone is seeing. I mean, in every, almost in every video that I am seeing of people kind of, you know, protesting in Haifa, Akkayafa, Jerusalem, Ramallah, I'm saying, oh, this, I know her, I know him, and they're all part of my queer community, and my, you know, they're the friends of that person that I know. And and this is kind of, it's funny because, you know, a lot of times queer movements feel as if um, we need to organize, you know, a separate kind of protest that is like, like in the, in, in, in Berlin, for example, there's this uh, Queers for Palestine protest that they, that they organize uh, on an annual basis. Uh, but in Palestine, like for us, we've been already integrated in the planning process, in the mobilization process, in the creative process of every of every movement uh, uh, of of liberation of any anti-colonial movement against Israeli occupation and against our fragmentation. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful because it doesn't kind of you know buy into this you know idea of identity politics where we have to kind of separate everything like this is for this kind of group and for those who have that identity this is their kind of area and in palestine it's just like we're all palestinians (laughs) we're all you know traumatized and sick of this and we all want to (laughs) liberate palestine and we don't really care Um, and i really loved witnessing that a while back when i went to wadi in haifa uh, which is a historical Palestinian neighborhood. Um, and on that day, they organized this kind of, uh, you know, uh, they called it, today I'm marrying my homeland. Uh, uh, that's how the event was called. And I, when I entered the, the souk, the, the market, uh, I saw a lot of children uh, painting on the walls of the neighborhood. I saw a lot of kids uh, running around. Uh, and I saw... Um, you know, a circle of people sitting uh, with different musical instruments, uh, playing music and singing. And the fact that I witnessed so many visibly queer and, you know, fluid, gender fluid people sitting next to, you know, older, you know, grandpas who have probably been born before the Nakba playing Oud, singing together women, um, you know, 
lesbians with buzz cuts and piercings in their in like it, it was so beautiful to witness this because it wasn't an abnormal kind of you know scene it was just part of what's happening and i think that's really beautiful it's it's really beautiful for us as a society that is still battling a lot of patriarchal violence uh, to kind of be able to witness this happening in in contrast to everything that Israeli occupation tries to internalize in our mind and in our collective psyche. Uh, and the Palestinian, regarding the Palestinian queer movement in Palestine, I think it's very vibrant and diverse. I mean, it's, it very much stems from the local reality of Palestinian societies. Uh, it very much works um, against the fragmentation. Uh, so, for example, movements and organizations such as Al-Qaus, uh, for gender and sexual diversity in Palestinian society who have been established um, at the time of the Second Intifada. Uh, they have uh, many, uh, you know, community hubs across Palestine in, in Ramallah, Nablus, Yaffa, Jerusalem, Haifa. Uh, and they hold a lot of uh, different initiatives. Some are advocacy initiatives for, you know, professionals, uh, educators, and organizations that work with the youth. For example, uh, they organize parties, they disseminate all sorts of uh, academic analysis uh, that is intersectional and radical and uh, informative. Um, they organize a lot of uh, community-based initiatives uh, across different areas, not in just not in just the hubs that I mentioned earlier, but in uh, smaller uh, localities and villages. And I think what what really kind of identifies. The movement is that it really works with Palestinian society. It really is part of Palestinian society. It really holds the values of us as Palestinians. And it doesn't try to kind of give in to what Israel tries to do to us, which is isolating our own experiences from the larger you know, society that we live in. We love our society. We love our language. We love our traditions. We do face a lot of discrimination. We do face a lot of obstacles. And we are willing to combat them because we are dreaming of a better Palestine that is liberated from patriarchy and colonialism and capitalism and neoliberalism. Like, it's not something that scares us. Uh, and I know that a lot of Palestinians, queer Palestinians, um, oftentimes don't have the emotional and mental capacity to have this kind of you know, resilience to to look at things through such a, such a strong uh, lens uh, with such agency. A lot of queer Palestinians feel isolated from Palestinian society, and that is valid, and that is real, and that is, that is okay. But what, what we're trying to do is to actually prevent that from happening, to create more and more spaces for Palestinians, with, regardless of their abilities to deal with the military and colonial reality. We want to actually dream of a Palestine that is accessible and inclusive and secure and safe for each and every Palestinian woman, child, queer person, old, Falahi, Bedouin, Christian, uh, Muslim, atheist, whatever, J- just for all of us, you know? I mean... First of all, like everything you just said, I'm, I wanted to just scream like yes and clap my hands and do all sorts of things. So I use a lot of restraint because everything you're saying is just so true and so important and something that I think everyone needs to keep in mind, especially when speaking about Palestine and speaking about queer communities in Palestine, because like everywhere else in the world, just to reiterate, 
not everyone has it within them to be able to come out in whatever form that may be. And it, it, there are so many factors that play a role, but what I can only imagine for queer individuals living in Palestine, living under occupation is probably a huge factor, I would imagine, in creating obstacles in their life. And, you know, I think fighting for queer and LGBTQ rights in Palestine is absolutely important, but people need to keep in mind that they are fighting for basic rights. We cannot just skip through basic rights and have rights for queer people. That's not going to happen. We need to have basic human rights before we can get into, you know, specifying. And I think everyone loves to think that Western societies are so quote unquote progressive, but I mean, the rights of queer people and trans people in America are constantly being threatened, constantly actively being threatened. I mean, the administration right now in the United States is like trying to fuck over trans people just nonstop, just constantly in every way. They are trying to go backwards in every way possible. So I think it does, it may appear because we have, you know, Pride Month and we have parades and we have gay clubs and we have all of these things. It appears like, oh yeah, we're super progressive and inclusive and everything is fine and our fight for gay rights is over. But that's that's not true. That is very much so far from the truth. And so taking that into consideration, when viewing Palestine, it's just not even a relevant argument at all to say that, oh, well, Palestinians are not tolerant of queer communities. That is not what should be a part of the conversation at all. The conversation should and should always be all Palestinians deserve rights. And that is what we are fighting for. And that includes all sexual identities. All Palestinians deserve rights. And the rights of one Palestinian does not take away from the rights of another Palestinian. And it's it's genuinely basic human rights that we're fighting for. And uh, for people who've been listening to my podcast, they know at this point that, I mean, Palestinians are basically not even treated like human beings. Um, So it's, it's really just, we need to look at this from a large scope and, and, and really focus on the fact that having just human rights is the first step in moving in the direction of getting more protection and rights and creating more spaces for queer communities in Palestine. These are all tied into one another. These things all go hand in hand. And I mean, I would love nothing more than to come to Palestine and to see all of these beautiful people existing and, and, and living and being themselves. And, and like you said, I mean, there are a lot of queer Palestinians that live in Palestine that I know of, and I don't live there. It's erasing our existence has been going on the erasure of Palestinian people for 73 years. And that erasure is also continuing on into queer Palestinians. And, and we need to, we need to stop allowing this to happen and we need to speak up about it. And we need to, you know, utilize whatever voice we have to bring attention to the fact that these people need rights and that goes hand in hand with the fight for gay rights. Like these are all tied together and one cannot exist without the other. Yeah. I mean, also like 
th- there's like what's also very beautiful about um, the queer Palestinian movement is the fact that, like as I mentioned, it, it's really stemming from the local context of, of Palestine. And because, you know, rights, the, 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 the entire structure of rights and laws and legality is very much, you know, ridiculous in Palestine. I mean, what is international law in, in Palestine? I mean, there have been so many, uh, so many atrocities and illegal things that have been happening, so many rights that have been provoked and, and taken. Uh, from Palestinians that the entire discourse about rights becomes kind of, you know, ridiculous at, at a certain point. And which is why, like, the Palestinian queer movement and feminist movement and other movements have been, you know, adopting uh, a non-rights-based discourse, but rather a liberation discourse where we talk about radical change rather than, you know, making cosmetic changes to what is allowed and what isn't. I mean, a law in the U.S. that states that, you know, discrimination against a gay person in a workplace doesn't mean that all gay people are safe from violence in their workplaces. The fact that, um, you know, um, rainbow flags are being hung in streets doesn't mean that, for example, uh, trans and uh, uh, black trans women have, are not being killed in the streets uh, across uh, the U.S. Yep. And even in, in metropolitan areas that are, you know, so-called progressive. I mean, all yep. of these things are very much, you know, cosmetic changes. And I don't, which is why I don't feel like, you know, I don't really connect to the idea of pride in the international sense of it. I mean, I feel proud when I walk with my society in the streets, chanting for the liberation of Palestine, regardless of who we are as people, regardless of the fact that I'm queer and that the person next to me is a, a religious person, where we are all understanding the differences between each other and, and you know, chanting uh, slogans of liberation. Uh, and I think that's actually change. That's actually radical change, where we don't need a law or a right to practice our sexuality, to practice our beliefs, to practice our movement, that we actually can just, you know, be and exist. And I think I think a lot of people think that Palestinian society is very much not progressive enough in what we do, which is how pinkwashing discourses uh, have been actually fueling. Uh, but I think a lot of international communities can actually learn from what the Palestinian queer movement has been advocating for in the last 20 years uh, in terms of what radical queer liberation actually means. I mean, honestly, I want to just take this little recording and put it on a boombox and just walk around and, and just play that last minute. Like genuinely, truly, that is going to be <laughs> the, 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 the audio that I use for this episode because <laughs> You just kind of encompassed and summarized everything we've just been discussing in such a beautiful way that, I mean, it's not complicated. And I think one of the main issues that Palestine is fighting against is this idea that things are very complicated and it's just everything is, is there's so many layers in Islam and all of these things. And it's like, it's very simple. And as you said, there. You just exi- you're just existing and it doesn't need to you don't need a law to tell you and I think that is a really important thing to keep in mind because every law that exists for Palestinians is not for their freedom so everything that they do in their life 
is an act of resi- uh, of resistance. Yep. And existing as a queer Palestinian is one of those acts of resistance because you don't need someone to tell you it's okay for you to be queer, for you to continue living and 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 being a Palestinian and and expressing yourself in whatever way you want and identifying however you would like. And we refuse these arbitrary fucking you know, ideas that someone needs to tell us that something is okay for us to think it's okay. I mean, it's honestly, I'm like, I, I really have loved this conversation so, so, so much. Thank you so much, Adam, for, for talking to me and for sharing your experiences and everything. And I, I really, I just genuinely feel so honored to be able to speak to you about these things and to be able to share it with, with my community and, and, and have them hopefully learn and, and educate others and, you know, continue to fight for the liberation of Palestinian people. Um, but where can people find you online? How can people find more, more Adam? What, what, tell me all the things. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me really. It has been really enjoyable to have this conversation. It's, I mean, I really like to, I like the, the nature of also how we were speaking. Like it, it wasn't, it was just, you know, having fun, <laughs> hanging out. And I really, I really love that. Uh, and it's funny because, you know, we as Palestinians, we, when we have conversations, <laughs> a lot of times they, they get to, to these things. We, 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 we very, we very much talk about serious things so casually. Always. And I love Always. <laughs> It's it's never I've never had a conversation with a Palestinian person that has not involved extremely heavy serious matters. We thank you. <laughs> I have been saying I am an people are always like, Oh, you seem mad about that. I'm like, no, I'm not mad. I'm just an intense person. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a passionate person. Everything that I love and believe in, I will speak about passionately yeah. and I will speak about it to anyone who's willing to listen or engage in conversation. Then then there's no limitations. If someone wants to have the conversation, fucking all bets are off. I mean, clear my schedule for the rest of the day. Like this, we're, we're going to cry. It's going to, it's fine. Like, and, and this is just a part of our culture at this point. It's a part of our existence is we are constantly, you know, forced to acknowledge these very heavy matters. And I don't think it's something that, makes us weaker. I think it only makes us stronger. And I think it only makes us kind of more connected. And I think it just brings us closer together in a way that we are moving towards our freedom and our liberation. And I believe that with all of my being that we, we are moving in that direction and it is happening and it will happen. And Palestinians will have rights and, you know, and we won't stop having these heavy conversations even then, because these things will always exist, whether it's happening directly to us or to other human beings. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's the Palestinian experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like I just went on a little bit of a rant, but where can people find you online? I'm like, I totally cut you off. I'm such an asshole. I'm so sorry. The passion. I can't control it. No, no, that's okay. What's your sign? I'm I'm an Aries. I don't know that much about horoscopes, but everyone I, for those I'm who, an can't, Aries who too. can't see him, but oh my god, really? Yeah. 
Okay. I, I'm not very into horoscopes, but what I will say is I always fucking like Aries. Yeah. Like it's just, it's an instant connection. All of my closest friends are Aries. All of the people that I click with are Aries and we're all fucking fiery, uh, ass people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my queer, queer friends are very much into astrology, which is no secret to a lot of people, but a lot of queer people are, are very <laughs> much into astrology. And I've been very, at the beginning I was very resistant uh, but after after being surrounded with so many so many astrology enthusiasts, I became sucked into the astrology world. But yeah, anyway, um, you can find me uh, online uh, on my Instagram account, which is Kimiko uh, K I M I K K U. Uh, it's funny because I didn't, I, I never thought that I would, um, you know, have a following of any sort because I used to engage very minimally uh, with social media. Uh, and I deleted Facebook a while back. Uh, but right now, suddenly people look at my account as a resource uh, for a source it, of information. It, and I'm glad. Absolutely a resource. It's a thousand percent. It's a resource. Honestly, your posts are, I'm, that's why I was so glad to have met you because I followed you and I was like, he is just fucking speaking to my soul. He is saying all of the things that need to be said. And I think that following Adam on Instagram would definitely be a great move to make, especially if you want to listen to a Palestinian voice who is very much so. I mean, you, you're not making anything hard. You're making everything very easy for people to grasp onto in the most beautiful way. And I think you can learn a lot from just from following him because a lot of his posts are just, I've said it before, he's just a wealth of fucking knowledge. And I everything you have to say, I want to hear it. And also, I, I do want to just really quickly be like, what what did you learn about Aries that you really, you really felt like? What was the what was the thing that you learned about Aries that made you a fucking believer? Because I can feel that vibe from you that you are a believer. So tell me what what convinced you? A, a believer in what kind of sense, though? Like in horoscopes. In horoscopes, I mean, I don't know. It's funny because um, Aries are always like people say that Aries are you know angry, but they're actually uh, soft on the inside like they, they forgive quickly but when they when they get mad they unleash hell <laughs> and i think that's very true because when i'm passionate about something in a discussion like i start you know you know being, being a palestinian but you know making things with my hands and and clocking my eyebrows and and looking all you know pressed and speaking so passionately and then i'm like yeah but it's cool i mean nothing nothing is really happening just speaking. Fuck, I guess <laughs> I guess I believe in horoscopes now, yeah. guys, because honestly, you just basically summarized my entire like identity, which is that <laughs> I seem very intense and hard, but I am a fucking huge softy and I forgive people too many times. This is yeah. a boundary that I'm trying to create for myself that nor you can forgive people, but you don't need to let them continue to exist in your life. You can forgive them and then let them fucking fuck off. <laughs> fuck them. But like just navigating that because yeah, I mean, when I'm very mad, it is scary for everyone. Um, but I, I do the forgiving thing. I just, I think forgiveness is awesome, but I also yes. think that like having boundaries and forgiveness really need to work together because, you know, I'm even, I'm a grown ass woman and I'm still navigating it because it's just very hard to see the line between forgiving someone and 
and then allowing them to continue to be a part of your life and then making the distinction between maybe this person shouldn't be here anymore and I can forgive them. And that also can exist. <laughs> that, that, uh, the struggle between forgiving someone and being an Aries. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. Uh, apparently, I didn't know that this was a shared experience, but here I am learning that there are more, just an- yet another thing that um, Palestinians have in common is Palestinians who are Aries apparently are all the same person. <laughs> <laughs> we're the same entity existing in different vessels. <laughs> it, we're just, truly, we're just like, you know, little copies of us running around yelling at people and then forgiving them. It's fine. It's yeah. totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Adam, thank you so, so much. Um, I'm going to have all of your, I'm going to have your social media linked below as well as some resources. Um, as always, you could follow the podcast on Instagram at Arab American Psycho, where you will see a photo of Adam, if I can find one, because you don't post many photos of yourself. Not everyone is as narcissistic as I am. Um, and then, <laughs> as always, you can follow me on Instagram at Nori, where, you know, I'm just yelling about Palestine and trying to, you know, not fucking fight people in the streets and as always guys floss your teeth wear your sunscreen don't be a fucking asshole and let's free palestine let's free palestine